You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Happy, happy Monday to you, Doctor. How are you? Uh, hi, Laba. I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. You know, it's always a pleasure having to talk to you. And I saw, especially when I see a video on social media, I'm like, I need to ask the good doctor. But before I ask you the question, I'd like to invite all of you that are listening in 011-883-0702. Any of your questions for the naked scientist, they can be science related. Um, and even if they're not, I suspect you will have an answer for us or the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. So doctor, uh, I saw on social media this trend that people basically will take like an orange and then they will connect it with using a coin to a banana. So there'll be a little slit in the banana, a little slit in the orange, and they connect them. Then they make two holes in it, and they put in a charger for an iPhone, and as they plug it into the iPhone, it starts charging. How long it charges or if it charges at all after that, we don't know, but multiple people tried this experiment, and you see the phone charge. What is the reason for that? Well, we actually did this as an experiment on the radio on the Naked Scientists about 10 years ago. And um, we made a battery from fruit, which is effectively what you're doing. When you're connecting bits of fruit together, you are making a battery. And it's true that fruit has cells in it, but not quite the same sort of cell that batteries have. But it's an electrochemical reaction. And you can produce a sufficiently high voltage to charge a mobile device. But... We also measured the current which is flowing away from this fruit battery. And I don't mean current as in another food stuff. I mean as in electrical current. Yes. And the calculation is it would take in the order of probably decades to charge a phone with the amount of current that was flowing out of a fruit battery. We connected 30 apples and oranges together to get enough voltage and to produce a current that would actually sustain a charge but it was a really slow rate of charge. Now, the reason it works is that the fruit liquid, what's inside the fruit, the juice, is acidic, and it's got lots of salts in it. And when you put a metal like a copper coin in there, it acts as an electrode. But also, the acid attacks the coin, and if you put a metal of another species, which therefore is a different metal and has a, what we call an electrochemical potential between that and the other metal you've used also into the fruit which is what sticking the cable in does because the cable might be for instance a steel or a, a, a different material not just copper cable or electrode you get a current flowing between those two and it just uses the juice of the fruit as the electrolyte just like a battery in your car has an electrolyte of sulfuric acid so it's effectively an electrochemical reaction where one of the metals dissolves and it produces what are called metal ions, and as they dissolve, they release electrons. The electrons go around the circuit through the phone and then back into the other material that is on the other side of the piece of fruit. You could do it with any bits of fruit, actually. It won't produce a very high charge. It would be better for you and your bank balance to eat the fruit, which will be much better in the long run, and you can charge the phone the normal way, which will be much more efficient, but it will work. And if you go to nakedscientist.com, look, look it up online, you can find fruit battery um, charging an iPod, or an i. Uh, we we did an iPod at the time. They were big business at the time. Yes. Um, you you can you can look that up and you'll find our experiment with the pictures to prove we did it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Let's go to the lines. Mohammed in Bedford View. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Good. Thanks. And you? 
No, it doesn't have to complain. Thank you. Uh, my question is, to my knowledge, the time dinosaurs were around, human beings were not around. Yet, when you look at movies like Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, for lack of a better word, the dinosaurs, they roar or the noise that they make. How do we know that that is the actual noise that they make and hear mm. the example bark like a dog or hear like a cat? Mohammed, a great question. And the answer is that we have a couple of lines of evidence. One line of evidence is that living dinosaurs still with us today are called birds. Birds are the closest descendant to the dinosaurs that once walked the earth. And there are a range of reasons for thinking that. Birds make a lot of noises, as we all know. And so it's reasonable to assume that dinosaurs with very similar anatomy would have done a similar sort of thing. Then we've got the fossil record. And we can look at these fossils, we can look at the structure and shape of these fossils, and we can look at animals around today that have similar sorts of structures, including crocodilians and so on, that weren't dinosaurs, they aren't dinosaurs, but coexisted alongside the dinosaurs and other species. And we can infer how these animals would have behaved and what role sound would have played in them. And for that reason, there's every reason to suspect that dinosaurs probably did make noises. They probably used it for communication. They probably used it for defense by giving off war warning noises. Don't come near me. I'm big and, and angry and I will hurt you, etc. So there's a range of different things. And one quite intriguing story I read a few years ago was scientists looked at Parasaurolophus. These are the dinosaurs that have these big things that sticking out like rods from their heads. And there was a suggestion that the shapes of those because they were hollow, could have behaved a bit like organ pipes. The animal could have used them as resonant chambers. So when it did make sounds, they would resonate within those hollow cavities. And this would have the effect of amplifying certain frequencies, enabling the animal to make a much bigger repertoire of sounds. So we think the sound probably was quite important to dinosaurs, even though, as you quite rightly say, we didn't coexist alongside them. Humans are a relatively recent addition to Earth's um, biosphere. Mm. The dinosaurs were around until about 65 million years ago from a couple of hundred million years ago. Us anatomically modern humans have been around for only within the, the last million years. Thank you so much, uh, Mohammed in Bedford View for that question. Anne in Santon, hi. Good afternoon. Hello, Dr. Chris. Hi, I would like you to please explain to me, I was diagnosed with an underactive thyroid about 40 years ago. I'm now 69. I have never been medicated correctly. It's always either too low or too high. I was recently diagnosed with being under-medicated. The dose was tripled, and I've since lost 12 kilos over the last six months. I would like you to please explain how this works. How does a doctor get to the amount of uh, thyroid hormone, which I take L-toxin, how does it work? How, how do they uh, determine what dosage you should have? Mm. Thank you so much for that question. And have you been struggling for a while with this? Yes, mm. very much so. Mm. Very much mm. so. Doctor? Hello, Anne. Well, the answer to this, first of all, what does the thyroid do? The thyroid in your neck, which is a gland shaped a bit like a letter H, which crosses the midline and has a, an upper and a lower pole, which is why it's an H shape, makes the hormone thyroxine. Th 
thyroxine goes into every cell in your body and locks onto a certain part of your DNA and activates a genetic program that is almost like me setting the metabolism thermostat in your body. So it tells your cells how hard or, or not to turn themselves on and how, to turn, how hard to turn up the thermostat for your metabolism. So if you have too much thyroxine, your metabolism's thundering along and everything's working overtime when it shouldn't be. And that's problematic. People get all kinds of symptoms, including weight loss. They feel very hot all the time. They can get shaky. Your heart can race. It can cause uh, heart failure, paradoxically. Uh, and, and obviously, that's bad news. The opposite end of the spectrum, which is actually more common, especially in women, is underactive thyroid disease. Range of reasons why that can happen, but one of them is autoimmunity. The immune system suddenly, for some reason, just, just regards the thyroid as bad news, and it can attack it. And there can also be situations where you have an autoimmune disease that causes the thyroid to become overactive. But if you have too little thyroxine because your uh, thyroid gland isn't working properly or you've had to have it removed, under those circumstances, there's not a strong enough driver for your metabolism or for your cell's metabolic activity. And so the whole body slows down. You feel very cold. Metabolism slows down, so you tend to gain weight. You may find that their skin and hair changes and it can be associated with low mood as well. So obviously you need the right level of thyroid activity. So what a doctor does is to give the, the hormone, thyroxine, which you can take in a pill, it's very, very safe and very, very effective as a treatment, and they're aiming to replace the amount of thyroxine that you take with what should be naturally coming out of the thyroid gland. How do they know how much to give you? Because the thyroid gland is actually controlled by the pituitary gland in the brain and the pituitary gland secretes into the bloodstream a hormone called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, which goes round in the bloodstream, goes to the thyroid and says, please release some thyroxine. The pituitary gland is listening for how much thyroxine is coming out and it then turns down the production of thyroid stimulating hormone when it sees enough thyroxine in the bloodstream. So a surefire sign that someone is on the wrong dose of thyroxine is that the level of thyroid stimulating hormone in their bloodstream is wrong. And if you're taking too little thyroxine, then the body is seeing or the pituitary is seeing a lower level than it should. So it turns up the TSH signal. So that person will have a high level of TSH in their bloodstream or higher than normal. And if you increase their dose of thyroxine, it will then come down accordingly. And that's why people, when you're getting the thyroxine dose right, will have a sequence of blood tests which are looking at that signal, TSH. And the doctor is titrating how much thyroxine you get to what that level is doing, and they'll up the dose just enough to get you to the point where you're within the normal range for thyroid-stimulating hormone, and that it means that then the body is in the right balance and you should feel right. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Anne. For Sorry. Yes, go Could ahead, Anne. Well, Anne, there'll be what's called a reference range, and that reference range will be different for different tests. So, so depending upon which test your laboratory is using, they will have what they regard on their readout as the reference range, the correct level, and they'll be comparing you to their reference range. But different laboratories with different techniques will have different reference ranges. So there's no one standard answer to that question. It will depend on the test they're using on you. Thank you so much, Anne in Santon. Sarah in Santon, hi. Hi, Dr. Ian. Um, I just wanted to 
Hello, good afternoon, Key, and good afternoon to Dr. Chris. I'm going to ask you whether there has been anything new done for macular degeneration, whether there are new treatments, procedures, or newer injections than ILIA. Please, could you uh, Sarah, tell me? Um, the, yeah. the answer is that uh, this is very common, and for people who haven't come across or unfamiliar or are unfamiliar with what macular degeneration is, this is a condition. This is a condition where, with age, usually, but also in association with and aggravated by certain other conditions, the part of the retina called the macula, also known as the yellow spot, which is where you do most of your seeing, that deteriorates. This is the part of the retina which, when you look across a room and seek out the face of a person you love, or you're watching your favourite TV programme, or you're trying to read a book, it's that part of the retina which is being affected. And there are two flavours of macular degeneration, what's called dry and wet macular degeneration. The wet form, so-called, because it is a vascular problem. Blood vessels that supply that part of the eye become leaky, they, they allow the escape of various products from the bloodstream which then are toxic to that part of the retina and this destroys that part of the retina or at least damages its ability to correctly pick up light signals. The dry form is a different pathology but has the same end point which is you again lose the function of that part of the retina with the consequence that you are robbed of your central vision. The acuity of the central vision slowly goes making it hard to do things of day-to-day -day activities. So given that that part of the retina is diseased, any treatment has to A, stop the disease getting worse and B, reverse the loss of function. So treatments are really focusing on doing those two things. One, diagnosing it early so people can be spotted who are at risk and then given treatment that can stop it happening. And we understand something about the mechanism of this now, which means we can, with certain drugs, slow it down. But for people who this has already happened to, there are some quite exciting developments that are happening. And there was a story about a month or two ago of uh, a woman who was implanted with a bionic eye. Now, researchers have been doing this for a little while now, but they're, they're making enormous inroads towards making implants, which are electrical, that can be put into the back of the eye against the retina. And they convert signals sent in there to this effectively electrical chip from outside into s signals that the retina can pick up and then send to the brain. And the initial tests show that this can be used to restore some quality of vision. Not brilliant yet, but it's certainly a big step forward and it's getting better. The other thing that people are doing is developing implants for the back of the eye where you can put some of the cells that are being damaged or lost in. And so they're making almost a sticking plaster that can be wired into the back of the eye. And this can help to restore some of the damage and in that way restore some vision but also stop the problem getting any worse. So people are focusing on this because it's a big problem and as we all live longer it's going to be an even bigger problem and it has a huge impact on quality of life and independence which is why it's a priority for healthcare workers to try to solve this problem. Thank you so much, uh, Sarah, for that question. I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, doctor, but the person says, I had uh, Giardia. Is that how you say it? Uh, Giardia. Giardia. In November, yeah. I am battling to get back to my normal health. Infection level was triple three. I now have vulnerable brain. That's the WhatsApp that came through. Mm, well, Giardia is a waterborne or foodborne illness. 
it's actually a microorganism which we pick up from contaminated water from the environment and it invades the wall of the gut and it tends to cause a self-limiting illness which is diarrhea, vomiting and upset tummy for a period of time. It can be very easily treated and a course of antibiotics usually gets rid of it but people who are at risk can include people with immune problems and so if someone is underlying immunosuppressed for whatever reason or they're in poor health generally or they're taking drugs that can cause other problems to do with how you would normally fight off infection it is possible it could become a persistent infection. It's also possible there could be something else going on as well if you're still uh, under the weather a period of time later but if the symptoms have persisted it's worth getting it rechecked to make sure that you have actually cleared the infection or that they have missed something else that's also there and needs treatment as well. All right, and I think that's a, that's a, such an interesting one. Hopefully, uh, the person gets sorted out. Unfortunately, that message was unsigned. Uh, here is a WhatsApp message that has come through. Hi, um, there's a question to the naked scientist. My name is Ernest. Um, I've seen videos of... Um, uh, power generation where a motor is connected to a generator so that motor basically turns the, the generator to produce electricity but then the motor also um, the generator also gives power to the motor so I want to know how feasible is that so that it's basically a self-contained system where the motor powers the generator and then the generator then powers the motor as well how feasible is that Thank you. Hello, mm. Ernest. The answer is that it's totally impossible because what you would have created is what's called a perpetual motion machine, which violates everything we know about physics. In physics, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Why won't this work? Well, the reason is that when we burn fuel to make the generator turn, for example, make it work, then you are running an engine which is lossy. Then, in other words, not all of the energy in the fuel is converted into useful work in the generator. You end up throwing away some energy. Where? Well, in noise and in the heat of the gases that go out down the exhaust pipe. The generator then turns an alternator, an electric motor, and when it generates electricity in the alternator, again, it doesn't convert all of the energy in the motion into electrical electric energy. Some, lost, some is lost. The alternator heats up there's some vibration, there's some noise, there's some other heating. And so not all of the electricity is, 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 sorry, not all of the energy is captured as electricity. If you then sent that back round the circuit and, and tried to repeat the process, so the motor then starts powering itself to turn the generator, etc., because there are losses in every step of the chain, you are losing energy, and so you've got less and less energy every time you, you hand on the energy from one form to another, and so it can't carry on for very long. So it's a good idea, it's a nice idea, it's a tantalizing idea that we could do this, but unfortunately you can't get something for nothing in science. Unfortunately the universe is mean like that, so it just <laughs> won't work. I love that the universe is mean like that. All right, here's another WhatsApp voice note. Hi, the Naked Scientist, and afternoon everyone. I would like to ask a question of why is it that whenever I pass where there are dogs inside the gate, uh, those dogs, they come running at the gate and they start barking on me. Or even if when <laughs> someone passes with the, with the dogs inside his or her car, those dogs, they start barking. Why is it that happens? Well, dogs are uh, 
pack animals and they are territorial as well and so they recognize their mates and they recognize their owners because they assume that you're part of their pack when you're their owner and they therefore regard anybody who's not in their pack as hostile and foreign and they will bark at them but it's interesting because they don't regard everybody as hostile and foreign and, and my dog is the same he will bark at he like he doesn't like blokes and he barks at other men but he's fine he's a real ladies dog he's very nice to the ladies but barks at all these men he doesn't know <laughs> and so I, th I think it's really it's a territory and b it's it's acknowledging and highlighting the unknown a foreigner and dogs are, are really good at that because they want to warn the pack the group that there is a potential hostile in the area and i think that probably visual has something to do with this men are bigger than women in my case of my dog he probably on average men are bigger than women so he's, he's probably thinking larger bigger threat men smell different to men to women uh subtly and to a dog with a sense of smell a hundred thousand times better than our own it, you, there is almost certainly some subtle odor cue which may which may also play a part and i think those factors together with the i'm defending my territory and warning my my pack that there's there's others around i think that's what's going on that's why we keep them because they make good guard dogs aha uh aha -huh, uh -huh. i like that um one more voice note good afternoon 72 i quickly want to ask you know when you're a baby your eyes are super super white but i as i look in the mirror now i see my eyes are kind of reddish so why are my eyes reddish and is there a way or a treatment which i can use to make my eyes super super white like like a baby's eyes <laughs> i've wondered this myself brilliant <laughs> question and, and the thing is I, I stare in the mirror and it's not just my eyes i'm worried about it's the general sagginess and the aging effect yes. <laughs> in, in, in general really and i expect you're the same labor aren't you i mean although you know i i, I must be cautious about insulting a lady but I mean, we all we all look in the mirror and think, gosh, I wish I could wind back time. Of course. But what makes eyes a bit red is blood vessels. And so uh, anything that makes blood vessels dilate and become a bit more prominent is going to make your eyes appear redder. As we get older, uh, we're more likely to become stressed. And stress will also do this. We're more likely to be sleepy and sleep deprived. And that will also make your eyes a bit blotchier. If you drink alcohol, that will also make your eyes a bit red because it dilates the blood vessels going out and about and getting exposed to pollution and irritation because of smoke and so on in the air and other particles that will cause it. Allergies will cause it. Babies are, are very lucky when they're born. They're in a cushioned environment that protects them from everything and and as they get older it's it's life's knocks that turn them into the age specimens that we become as we get older so i think that's probably the answer to your question thank you so much dr chris smith the naked scientist will be back uh, with you next week monday